Well, we have been taking some time this month to, to ask God to, to show us how to be good at, at being uh, rich, and particularly being rich in those things that matter most. And, and to kind of reset this morning, I want you to try to imagine your great-grandparents, or maybe even for some, your great-great-grandparents, and imagine what life might have been like for them. And what maybe they would think if they could see how we live today. Greg Easterbrook of the Brookings Institute wrote a book a few years ago, The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. And his observations were that while, while we've had a tremendous uh, financial and economic uh, boom and growth, uh, that it hasn't been accompanied by growing levels of happiness. In fact, is you could argue statistically that uh, happiness uh, hasn't gotten better, but some of the, the other ends have gotten worse. He starts off by saying that, that we, by any standard of, of measure as the average Westerner today, lives better than 99.4% of all human beings that have ever lived in the history of of the world. And he has, for instance, life expectancy has doubled over the last century. I mean, think about that. And it continues to increase. It's one of the reasons we're straining with Social Security, right? Uh, it wasn't like originally conceived for people to live as long as we're living right now. But not only has our, has our uh, time of, of living increased, uh, but real per capita income has doubled even since 1960. And the standard of living that we have, our, our great-grandparents probably couldn't have hardly uh, imagined. As an example, he points out that right after World War II, right after World War II in this country, the average home was 1,100 square feet. Average home was 1,100 square feet. That the average home today in America is 2,300 square feet. Uh, that, that we've actually more than doubled. It, it used to be that there would be two people for every room in a house, and uh, now sometimes it seems we have two rooms for every person in the house, or sometimes uh, even more along the way. Whether it's uh, technology or health care or leisure, the average American enjoys a quality of life beyond anyone's wildest dreams just a few years ago. And that's not to make us feel guilty. We've been trying to say that over and over again. But hopefully it does help us to feel grateful. Grateful for all that God has given to us. And as we've been looking to God's word, what we've come to understand is that while we are rich, we aren't necessarily very good at being rich. While we have more stuff than ever before, and in many ways, a higher quality of life than even previous generations could have imagined, we're not always very good at dealing with it. And so our objective in this whole series has been that we would be good at being rich, that you and I would somehow learn how to be good at being rich. And in order to do that, let me just take you back to our focal passage, 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich... 
In this present age, you and I, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, in those few short verses, Paul instructs Timothy to help us to understand how to to learn how to be good at being rich. So let's take a quick review. Out of those verses, we've just been reminding ourselves, God has blessed me with more than I need. And I am rich. I don't always feel rich, uh, but I am rich. And that doesn't deny that some of us are living under the financial pressure right now, but I am rich. That's the good news. The bad news is that there are some unique spiritual challenges that go with being rich. That money does things to people. And we looked at some of the, the, the unique challenges of, of being rich. And so because of that, we want to continually ask ourselves some key questions questions. One of those is, how are my finances shaping my heart? How are my finances shaping my heart? And last week, we we took even a little bit of a deeper dive on that. What is deeply within my heart, underneath my financial behaviors? Because we said our financial behaviors reveal our heart, but they also reorient our heart. So I need to continually ask, what is deeply within my heart, underneath my financial behaviors. And we looked at four kind of joy-filled heart transformations that God in his grace wants to develop in us along the way. One of the key thoughts that we've tried to hold up in this series straight really out of 1 Timothy 6 uh, is that I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. Even in an abundance of riches, I will not put my hope in riches, but in him who richly provides provides. And then we acknowledged out of 1 Timothy 6 that I can keep my heart and my hope from drifting by doing good, being rich in good works, and being generous and ready to share. And in the end, it's not primarily about what I have. Because there's always going to be somebody that is richer, right? There's always an er out there. There's always somebody who is smarter or taller or faster or whatever it is. There's always an er. There's somebody who is richer, but it's not primarily about what I have. It's what I do with what I have that will count either for me or against me in the kingdom of heaven. And with that kind of quick review, what we want to focus on is one aspect of what Paul told Timothy to tell us. And that is, in order to be good at being rich, make sure that you are rich in good works. To do good and to be rich in good works. And that's not just kind of a one-off statement, but, but that permeates uh, the teaching of Jesus Christ and the followers of Jesus Christ. I want to just kind of do a a quick walkthrough of some of the examples of that. See, every follower, every follower of Jesus Christ is saved 
for good works. You and I are saved for good works. Ephesians 2 says, we are his workmanship. Every one of us, we are this unique creation of God, this masterpiece, this this unique poem of God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, now let me make this clear distinction. We are saved, not saved by works, but for good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right before this verse says, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. I'm not saved by my good works, but one of the reasons that God saved me, one of the reasons that God rescued me and brought me to himself by his grace through Jesus Christ was for good works. Good works which he prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. Have you ever thought that there are some things that God has already prepared for you to do? There are good works that God designed to be unleashed through your life. We are saved for good works. We are gifted by God for good works. We're gifted for good works. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it. Use it not just to feather your own nest or to to, to increase your own portfolio. No, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Uh, That God, in his great diversity, has given a wide variety of gifts, spiritual gifts, aptitudes, abilities, talents, life experiences, job experiences, educational experiences, all of these gifts that he's given to us. And he said, you've received that, but you have received it in part to serve one another as good stewards, a manager of God's varied grace. To to begin to, to think in terms of God, everything that I have, it does come from you. I am gifted by you. I am saved by you for good works, to serve other people, to bless other people. And not only that, but we are clearly commanded to serve others. You and I are commanded by Jesus Christ to serve others. It's it's not an optional, it's not an add-on, it's not a luxury, but it is to be inherent of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. When he talked about the kingdom he was establishing, he said it's going to be radically different from the kingdoms of the world. He said people in the world jockey for position. They abuse power but not so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God, in the flesh, Jesus, who gave up the glories of heaven and came to earth and he served and to drive home that message on that last night with his disciples, he, he picked up the towel on the basin that we referenced last week to remind them this is what greatness looks like. We are commanded 
to serve, to engage in good works which bless others and not just for people we like or or even people that we always agree with, but to serve, to serve because that's who God has commanded and created us to be. We are to be prepared and encouraged for ministry and good works. That, that's part of, of the calling of the body of Christ, of, of the church of Jesus Christ, to prepare and encourage people for ministry and good works. So Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, he gave some to be apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. But notice why. Not to do all the work, but to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. That all of us are to be equipped for ministry, equipped for good works, equipped for service. We are to be encouraged in that. Hebrews talks about one of the reasons we don't neglect coming together is that encouragement. And let us consider, he says, how to stir up one another to love and what? Good works. Love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Part of what should take place when we hang out together is we encourage one another. We encourage one another to love and to good works. In a world that will encourage selfishness and consumption, we are to gather and encourage one another to love and to good works. We are to be equipped and prepared for that along the way. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, every one of us needs to know that I'm needed that we're needed for multiple needs in the church and in the world. One of Paul's favorite ways of talking about that was to picture this group of followers of Jesus Christ as the human body, as the body of Christ. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually, members of of it. It is this great word picture that he just reminds us every part is needed. Sometimes what's needed most is hearing. Sometimes what's needed most is, is vision. Sometimes what's needed most is a, is a word. Sometimes what's needed most is a hug or an encouragement or somebody to, to help lift a load that somebody can't lift on their own right now to help carry a burden that is overwhelming somebody right now. And there is this great diversity. God intentionally didn't make us all the same. Now, sometimes we would think it'd be a whole lot easier if everybody were exactly like me, right? Uh, but, but he get great diversity within this room. In just these moments, there's, there's such diversity of gifts and talents and abilities and heart passions and, and things that you deeply care about. And there are things that God has uniquely positioned you to do. 
And not only do you lose, but the church loses and the world loses when you don't engage, when you don't move out beyond yourself to be rich in good works. You don't have to do it like somebody else does it. But you have to be who God created you to be. You have to use what God has entrusted to you. And so we are called and commanded and encouraged and we are needed for multiple needs in the church and in the world. And then I want you to see that we are also accountable for our good works. We're accountable for our good works. You know that old saying, you don't always get what you expect, you get what you inspect, right? Uh, Well, sometimes what we forget uh, is that God says, what I have told you to do, what I have gifted you to do, what what the world needs you to do, I'm inspecting. I I am, am actually going to investigate kind of inspect what did you do with what I entrusted to you. Paul said we all build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Not that each one intended to do, not that each one talked about doing someday, but what each one has done. You know what this reminds me of? Sometimes the things that are highly valued by people aren't as highly valued by God. Sometimes the things that we think are impressive when God evaluates them aren't that impressive. In fact, as I remain convinced that some of the greatest celebrations and rewards in heaven aren't going to be for celebrities that we know in Christian subculture, but is going to be for somebody whose name and face most of us don't know but who stewarded their life so well, used whatever God had entrusted to them so well uh, that it impacted lives in a rich and powerful way. We are accountable for what we do with our one and only life. That's why Paul encouraged uh, the Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord... Not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Oh, hear me. The world may never notice what you do. The church may not notice all that you do. You may not get lots of applause or even affirmation this side of eternity. But it comes back to remind myself, whether anybody notices, whether anybody applauds, whether anybody appreciates or affirms, it is the Lord Christ that I am serving. It is his opinion, his evaluation that matters the most. And I am accountable to him 
for my good works. But one last thought as we kind of do this quick uh, survey of, of some of the teachings of the New Testament encouraging us to be rich in good deeds, rich in good works. And that is, as a follower of Jesus Christ, engaged in good works, I am to point to God. We are to point to God and not ourselves. Uh, that, that it's not about pointing to ourselves, but we are a signpost that points beyond ourselves to God. So Jesus would say in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And he gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may, now watch this, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They see your good works and they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, that's the story, really, of the early church. I don't know if you thought about it much. But from just a logical perspective, there really wasn't a whole lot of reason that the church of Jesus Christ should have taken hold and exploded, right? I mean, think about it. Uh, they, they didn't have uh, money and power and influence. They didn't have buildings except the homes that they lived in. They didn't have all the things that we tend to think you have to have in order to be and do church, right? And they didn't have all the... In fact, is they were looked down upon. They were opposed by, by Jewish uh, folks. They were opposed by uh, Romans and, and pagan philosophers along the way. And yes, they had the power of the message of the gospel, but it was authenticated by the power of their lives, by the power of generosity. And the stories are uh, almost legion in, in, in their number that when a community would sometimes have a sickness, a, a plague would go through, that people fearing for their lives would leave the community, the pagan priest would leave the community, and they would leave those who were sick behind. But who stayed to take care of them? It was that strange group of folks that were called Galileans, followers of the way, little Christ Christians. They stayed, some of them losing their lives because they stayed. They stayed to take care of and minister to those who were sick. They, they would find that people would be so overcome by, by what they had done that they began to say, tell us about this Jesus. One story that's kind of survived antiquity records the, the story of a man by the name of uh, Pacomius. Pacomius was a young man 
And his town was uh, overcome by the Romans. And the Romans, when they came, they would often take uh, young men of, of fighting age, and they would take them and kind of conscript them into the army. Uh, and knowing that many of these young men would try to escape, uh, initially they would put them in jail. They would put them in prisons. They would keep them uh, in the, behind bars so they wouldn't escape until kind of their will had been broken a little bit. They were trained for the army. But occasionally as they were in these situations, as they were in these uh, large gatherings of prison, it, it wasn't the healthiest of conditions. And very often there would be disease that would break out. And Paco Mias was taken captive when his town was overcome and he was put into one of these, these kind of mass jail things. And people were starving because not only was there disease, but there was a famine in the area. But at night... At night, there was this strange group of people who would slip up silently, and they would slip food through the bars to give to these prisoners. And they would do it night after night after night. <laughs> who were these people? Where did they come from? Why are they doing this? He did his time in the, the service, but those questions still marked him because he discovered that these strangers were some of those Galileans, some of those followers of the way, followers of Jesus Christ. And as he was released from his obligation to the, uh, the Roman army, he began to, to seek out some of these followers and he began to learn about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And he was so overcome by the gospel that he became a follower of Jesus Christ and would go on to be one of the uh, influential leaders in, in the movements of the early church because that's the power of generosity. That's what happens when God's people are rich in good deeds, that their names, their faces, we may not know, but they gave glory to God and lives were transformed. And that's my calling and yours. That's part of what it looks like to be good at being rich, to be rich in good deeds, to be rich in good works. So how do I live this out? Well, let me just first of all suggest you pre-commit, you pre-decide. You pre-commit, you pre-decide. Yes, this is going to be a part of my life. Yes, this is something that I am gonna value. This is something I am gonna pursue. This is something I am going to protect. This is something I'm not just gonna kind of give uh, leftovers to, but this is something I am pre-committing, pre-deciding. This is a priority for my life, that I am going to use my life. I am going to engage in good works, in good deeds. And I I want to encourage you to make it regular, to make it systematic. I know there's an appeal about a random act of kindness, and please engage in random acts of kindness. But, but here's what I know. Unless something becomes regular and systematic, it probably doesn't have the greatest impact in our lives. So let me put these two together, and let's, let's just talk a moment about, uh, about physical exercise, right? Everybody thinks it's a great idea, right? 
Everybody, okay, yeah, we should do it. Yeah, I know. And, I mean, every January, folks get fired up about it, right? That's why we buy exercise equipment and gym memberships and diet plans and all these things. I mean, this is the year that I'm really going to do it, right? The fact of the matter is, if it's the only time you eat well and exercise is random acts, <laughs> It doesn't have much effect on your body, does it? If the only time you and I engage in acts of good works is random, once in a while, a big push when somebody guilts me into it for a week, it's not going to have much effect on our heart. In order for me to be good at being rich, I have to be rich in good works. And in order to be rich in good works, it can't just be a random act of kindness. It has to be something that I pre-commit and pre-decide. This is a priority in my life. And I figure out a way to make it regular and systematic. And that means that I commit to something. (laughs) Those who exercise and do it well commit. A certain day, a certain time, a certain place, right? I am going to use whatever gifts God's given me and I'm going I'm to show up a certain day, a certain time, a certain place. I'm going to build it into the rhythm of my life. I'm going to pre-commit, pre-decide, and I'm going to protect it along the way. And then I'll also encourage you, at least occasionally, do your good deeds in secret. At least occasionally. Do your good deeds in secret. I know Jesus just said to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This isn't every time, but at least occasionally we ought to be reminded of the other words of Jesus. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There are times that you and I need to engage in things because remember, one of the things that money does, it creates haughtiness, arrogance. It, helps, it makes us feel less dependent upon God and less interdependent with others. And so occasionally, I just need to do something that maybe nobody else is ever gonna know about. I engage in a good work and a good deed and nobody knows Maybe not even the recipient knows, but God the Father knows. I need that for my heart. You need that for your heart. You need that. I need that to be rich and to be good at being rich. Now, as we've gone through this series, I've tried to give you these principles, but we also wanted to give you a story. We also want you to to meet folks along the way that are seeking to live this out. They're going to do it differently than you and I are going to do it, but we can learn from each other's story. And so I want to introduce you to one other couple and how they've tried to be good at being rich, not only with their finances, but rich in good works and good deeds. Check out their story.
Debbie Oaks, and I grew up here in Wichita. Pete Oaks, grew up in Hoisington, Kansas, a small farming community, a couple hours from Wichita. We have been married 35 years. I'm an entrepreneur by birth, probably, and I grew up in a farming family, so we were used to doing uh, lots of things for ourselves, and I think that probably carried through into my the life that I now live. Started out in the commercial banking business and spent eight years doing that. Then I left that and started an investment banking company, which we really acted as the middleman in deal situations. After eight or ten years in the investment banking business, we began to buy a deal or two. And so over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, we've purchased a company here, there. Our approach is to grow it, treat our employees fairly, serve them well, uh, run the business with excellence, and be a good steward of the resources God's given us. After a number of years, probably 10 years, owning our own business, we had become more financially successful than I ever thought I would. I began to realize that while I had that financial success, I still wasn't satisfied. Deb and I both grew up in homes that were very generous, so we understood generosity from a very early age. When we became married, we wanted to carry that on. That was probably in our DNA, generosity. But I think for the first few years of our lives, we were really, uh, I would say I was a 90-10 guy. I wanted to make a lot of money so that my 10% to God was a big number. Well, you can imagine what I had planned for the 90%. And thanks to a couple of old, older mentors that came alongside of me and really guided me along, they opened my eyes up to this whole concept of stewardship. It really means we're just the managers. We don't really own anything. So when you understand that, it puts a whole new spin and a whole new context on how you live life. I think we began to uh, learn these concepts and came home and applied them to our lives. Uh, we experienced the joy of giving. So this journey for us has probably been a 15, you know, we're in, into it 15 or 20 years. And a number of years ago, uh, of course, that glaring question always comes up, how much is enough? If I'm really the steward, how much is enough? It was interesting because we were fortunate enough to uh, meet uh, some other entrepreneurs who were struggling with the same issues. We've just agreed that we understand the accountability piece is very important. And we all understand that money is probably our, could be our biggest downfall. There are actually guys in the group that will allow others of us to set their salary. And maybe that's a too strong a word, but that we give them um, strong guidance on what we think is a, an appropriate lifestyle. And many of them could live way beyond those numbers, but we've just chosen to live at that, that range. Several years ago, we were in an acquisition mode and we came on an opportunity to build industrial seating. It had some, some of the same technology we were using in our other business, so we thought it would be a good fit. And it's a fairly straightforward process and somewhat labor-intensive. 
this uh, analogy that you should have a generous life, and life is an acrostic, L-I-F-E. It stands for you should be generous with your labor, you should be generous with your influence, you should be generous with your financial resources, and you should be uh, generous with your expertise. When we understood that, I began to look at our businesses and say, these are, these are resources that God has given us, and how can we use them not only to create treasure, but to create uh, social capital and spiritual capital. God really convicted me that generosity is much more than just writing a check. This was a new thing for us. We had never had a business in a prison before. The first time I went to the prison and heard those gates slam behind me, your heart skips a beat. You're like, this is for real. It, it's an unusual bunch of guys or inmates that we have working for us uh, at the prison. They're, uh, they've committed the worst crimes known to society. I ended up being an accomplice to uh, taking someone's life. I took someone's life who didn't deserve to be taken. I have a life sentence. The jury convicted me of second degree murder intentional. So I got 13 years and I've done six of it so far. It came to us that we needed a big vision for these guys to grab onto. The vision we cast for them was this. We want to have the best prison in the United States of America. They looked at me like I was some kind of a man from outer space. I, we thought he was crazy. <laughs> this guy, he's... <laughs> you know, at first, that's, that's what we thought, you know. Every couple of weeks, we have what we call a life lesson. It may be uh, how to be a good father. It may be uh, lessons on finance. Uh, it's lessons on relationships. In one of our life lessons, we uh, presented this whole concept of generosity and challenged them that we would match dollar for dollar any dollar that they gave to uh, one of a number of charities, and we gave them a list. It was amazing the amount of monies that these prisoners uh, gave to charity and what was probably even more fun is most of the charities that they gave to were charities that were that existed to help the victims of the crime that they committed. Not too long ago he was in our living area. You know I've never seen a volunteer do anything like that. He's come to church with us. He's come to banquets that we've had. You know he's, he's very involved and you can tell that he that he's invested. Seeing the motivation they have to help you out, it makes you want to help other people out. You know, so he's proving to, to me and to the rest of us that, man, if you set your heart to something, if you really fight for it, and if, you know, you're focused on it, it can happen. Pete, I believe that his, he has a desire um, to see us succeed. And the most important thing I've learned through this journey of gen generosity um, is the component of faith. Um, it's, it's all out of gratitude, and it all began with what Christ did for us.
In order to be good at being rich, it does all start with Jesus Christ. It is a response of gratitude for all that he has done for us. And so as we think about being rich in good works, I just leave you with a question today. Am I investing my life in what matters most? My labor, my influence, my finances, my expertise. What would it look like for me to take next step, one next step in being rich in good works? Let's pray to him together, please. Father, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We are so incredibly blessed. You are the one who indeed has so richly provided, and not just materially, Father, but but most of all, all that you have provided for us in in life in Jesus Christ. And we we praise you and thank you for that. And and Father, today we just come again and we ask you to, to shape our heart and shape our life. And Lord, show us Show us who have been so abundantly blessed how to be good at being rich. Father, teach us how to be rich in good works, not to earn something from you, but in gratitude for what you have already done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, just even in these next few moments, in the days and weeks ahead, would you show us how to use our labor, our influence, our finances, our expertise in that which matters most. And I'm just going to invite you just to be still before the Father for a few moments more in this room.